Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today on our show, we are going to have in the beginning a particular um, part. We're going to talk about a part of the municipality in Irvine, once a hunting grounds of prosperous indigenous peoples, lime bean fields, Irvine family property, U.S. Marine Base of El Toro, and later sold to the highest bidder, the Lennar Company. We'll also talk to uh, political science professor Matthew Beckman at UCI, who's going to talk about what's happened to our political center as the nation reels with the aftermath of the great deficit ceiling debate amidst the Great Recession. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI, its management, or the University of California Board of Regents. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, and my first guest is Emil Haddad, an engineer by training. He's the principal and founder of the Five Point Communities, developer of the Great Park Neighborhoods here in the city of Irvine. His firm was responsible for various developments in California, including Newhall, in, uh, the Newhall Valencia in L.A. County, Hunter's Point Candlestick Park, and Treasure Island in San Francisco. His current project surrounding the Orange County Great Park is of interest today on this program. Emil Haddad currently serves on the UCI's Foundation Board and its Paul Mirage School of Business Center of Real Estate, as well as the Foundation Board of Children's Hospital of Orange County. He is a, a native of Beirut, Lebanon, and we will tap into that background as we explore his community development uh, immediately in our Irvine County vicinity. Welcome, Emil Haddad, to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad that you could be with us today because we know that on Thursday it will be very timely to have uh, residents know about the president, the proposal for the uh, this iteration of the Great Park Neighborhoods Plan. So I would like to first talk with you about how your background, coming from Beirut, Lebanon, informs you about community and community development? Well, um, I don't know that there's a big nexus, but I, uh, as you know, um, a, a good part of the what we call the old world in, in Beirut, Lebanon, is one of them. It's, a, it's an old city, uh, has gone through a lot of redevelopment. and uh, Re-redevelopment, I, I guess that's right and and i as a result uh you know i come from a mindset of uh redevelopment and that's where i started my career i started it in beirut lebanon and i started actually on doing a lot of redevelopment after the uh civil war was over so there was a lot of areas that were uh destroyed a lot of areas that were old uh just by virtue of aging and uh, and the key is how do you uh, redevelop those areas while maintaining the character as much as you can. So um, a lot of my projects that you just walked through uh, are redevelopment projects. Um, 
all of the San Francisco projects are all redevelopment. And uh, obviously the Great Park is a redevelopment. Uh, this is a very unique opportunity to take a, uh, a Navy base, a Marine base, and, and turn it into a, uh, a Great Park as well as a mixed-use development around it. So that's, that's really where the relationship is. And this particular area, it's you've been put on hold with the uh, downturn of the housing market. So it, I'm sure you wished it, it, you had been able to get started some five years prior to when uh, to the the phase you're approaching at this point. How have you been dealing with the reeling uncertainty of this housing market? Well, uh, you know, I I, I think that uh, the answer is yes. I mean, we all wish that this uh, down cycle didn't happen. But in many ways, there's a silver lining in that uh, every time you go through one of these uh, shifts, you have an ability to pause. The market was going extremely fast. A lot of us were just simply reacting to a market condition. And uh, and with that pause, you have an ability to revisit, reevaluate, and, and fine-tune a lot of your thinking and a lot of your plans. Um, what happened is that we acquired the base in July of 2005 at the peak of the market, both it's, uh, from the Navy in an you know auction, eBay-style auction. Uh, there were four parcels put out for bid. We won all four parcels, and, and that was a very strategic move. We wanted to make sure that we win all four parcels. So, so the private development has one developer, and therefore we can then establish the foundation of a public-private partnership with the city of Irvine, which we did, and it has been a very successful public-private partnership, notwithstanding the market conditions we went through. Um, as everybody knows, it uh, didn't take long before the market, uh, the housing market shifted, and and then followed by a whole collapse of the capital market, which took the country and the and the, and the world into one of the greatest recessions. Um, we got caught in that, and. The the um, principle of developing the private-public partnership was that the private development was going to go first, housing was going to lead because housing was very strong, and uh, and by going forward with housing, uh, there was going to be infrastructure put in the ground, meaning sewers, streets, waters, and everything else, and and that is a common infrastructure for both the park itself, as well as the private development. So that private development was going to go first. It was going to provide the infrastructure, and it was going to provide the funding, uh, and the park was going to follow, and, and the park was going to be built. You know, with the housing market shifting, uh, we, meaning the city and, and us, had to uh, pause and reevaluate and, and retool which we spent two years doing, and we successfully concluded a, uh, an amendment to a development agreement, which is the agreement between the city and us. Uh, that was concluded. Uh, fortunately, we, uh, we had to deal with some litigation that, uh, that was filed, and that was successfully also... Uh, can you unpackage a little bit about that, please, so our listeners can follow um, what, what that's about? Um, we, there was a cemetery out of L.A. Uh, that filed a lawsuit claiming they had rights, and uh, we went through uh, that lawsuit, and that lawsuit was successfully uh, dismissed. And, uh, and, but, uh, but that created a delay for us, and um, we then ended up 
moving forward on the uh, amended development agreement, what we call it, which is the uh, the retooled development agreement. Now, in the background of all of that, one of the factors that were not known is that when we bought the base, the uh, the financing part of the financing, the 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 debt part of the financing, the loan on the deal. Uh, was provided by Lehman Brothers, uh, obviously before Lehman Brothers ended up in their situation. Yes. So when Lehman Brothers filed bankruptcy in September of 2008, uh, we were thrown a curveball. Uh, you know, I a never grenade dealt with, in I Beirut never dealt style. A situation where my lender goes bankrupt, and uh, and we spent uh, over two years actually uh, working out the situation with Lehman Brothers. Uh, we bought them out and. Uh, and recapitalized the deal, and um, and that was all done by the end of 2010, actually December 29th, December 2010. May we ask with whom you've recapitalized the project? Yes. Um, I mean, the lender today on the project is uh, State Street, uh, a an institution lender out of uh, uh, Boston, but then the, uh, the capital, the equity part of the financing uh, comes from multiple sources, such as Lenar, LNR, uh, MSD, which is the uh, real estate arm of Michael Dell, uh, an opportunity fund in Rock Point. Um, it, uh, it comes also from some other institutions. So there's a lot of investors who have invested originally in the deal, and then they re-upped their investment uh, by the end of the year. So we that was very important for us to make sure that the uh, capital is available and as you can imagine with the shift in the market a lot of deals in the country had to go and restructure its capital which we concluded and shortly after that uh, we had a press conference with uh, all five council members and announced the filing of our first phase the maps for the first phase which hopefully we will get the uh, planning commission approval on Thursday, and then that will pave the way for our council hearing on the 23rd of August. And uh, planning for success, uh, we will then be uh, putting our first shovel in the ground and moving forward by sometime, in, I would expect, in October, November. We're talking uh, this morning on Ask a Leader with Emil Haddad, the CEO of Five Point Community, developing the great park neighborhoods here in Irvine, California. Um, I want, before you move into that next phase, though, what are some of those changes to the development plan that um, you can detail us? It's There's been a lot of different iterations of of uh, visions of around the great park. Can you detail for us, because I know I think there's a, a, an increased density along uh, portions of the northwesterly area. If you could unpackage a bit more about those changes, because it is time now, the Planning Commission will be hearing this on Thursday. Sure. First of all, uh, there is no additional, there is no more density seeked here for the project in, uh, in totality. We still have the same uh, density that we had all along. Uh, the only thing that uh, that has happened is that we have moved uh, some of the uses around, meaning we have moved the commercial around and the residential around uh, to create more efficiency and uh, and also to have more synergy with the, the plans of the park itself and the first phase of the park. As you know, the first phase of the park is the westerly side, and, and you can see a lot of things that have been happening over there. 
as well as a sports park, which is something that the city is going to be focusing on as the first phase. So, and as I said before, part of what we provide here in the public-private partnership is common infrastructure. So for us, it was uh, it made a lot of sense to move uh, the residential components. And and by the way, um, the first phase has also 1.2 million square feet of uh, non-residential. So that became our first phase. We we concentrated more on the uh, westerly and northwesterly portion of the uh, of the site, and that then will enable us to provide the same infrastructure for both our development and for the sports park and the first phase of the Great Park. So that's really what happened. But there is no more density uh, in totality. But uh, the, it does create more density around the northwesterly area with uh, various features that will, will look differently than they had originally been envisioned, correct? Correct. We have moved some of, as I said, we moved some of the residential more clustered more of it on the north and north uh, and the west, the west and northwest part of the property. And does that change any of the features existing in the topography and that particular part of the um, the great the great ne- neighborhood? <laughs> no. No, it doesn't change any of the topography. Okay. I um, I wanted to find out now with the the redevelopment agency funding that is now in question statewide, how will that affect your financing along with the city's financing of improvements in that general vicinity? Well, uh, the the redevelopment agency, as you said, is a statewide issue, and it's impacting 400 uh, agencies. So this is not obviously unique here. Um, We have, the good news for us is we have a lot of of things that give us uh, some protections over here. Um, we have a development agreement that has been executed, and it was executed before the governor came out with his announcement, and that has uh, implications, legal implications, in that you sort of have protection uh, in a private-private-private-public uh, contract, and that's a lot of legals and a lot of technical, and there are lots of attorneys who are going through that right now. Um, we're working very closely right now in Sacramento with the city um, to um, to work on some languages that could create some exemptions. There's a lot of interest from the governor's office to look for certain projects that could be uh, viewed differently um, because of different circumstances, and and uh, we believe that uh, the Great Park and the Great Park neighborhood would uh, would fit some of those. Uh, thoughts of exemptions. Well, because uh, have, because of being a um, a former base, does what what sorts of categories helps you um, get this exemption? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, the, the state obviously is interested in seeing some of these bases, and so is the federal government wants to see navy base conversions continue. So, so that's the answer is yes. We believe that uh, there is an interest in uh, making sure that uh, the redevelopment agency elimination doesn't end up uh, negatively impacting a program such as the conversion of Navy bases uh, in the state of California. There are lots of them that uh, that need to happen. Um, and also, there's a lot of focus from the state on what they call transit-oriented districts, districts that, uh, meaning communities that provide uh, a balanced housing jobs, uh, or job housing balance, I'm sorry, 
and encourage people to use less uh, commute by car. So, and we fit that, obviously, with the train station, with everything that, that uh, we're doing over at the Great Park. And also, I mean, the, the redevelopment agency, as we, as the state wants to make sure that those development agencies, as we knew them, uh, get eliminated, but there will be something called successor agencies, which will be agencies that will take over and continue with some obligations. So it's a very complicated technical process. Um, but at the heart of all of this is that we have a partnership that is a very strong partnership with the city and with a healthy private developer and a city that is as proactive and as uh, sophisticated as the city of Irvine is, I have no doubt that we will be able to find solutions and the spark will be built. Well, in terms of that proactive uh, leadership that you're um, working with in the city of Irvine, um, I do have a question about the timing of the planning commission. This is going to be on Thursday. August is a pretty sparse time of the year for uh, residents to participate in a public forum. Um, are you concerned that this particular timing uh, will not avail the public a broader opportunity to participate? No, I don't think so. I, I, um, I think the public has uh, been very much focused and very much interested in uh, seeing this park uh, move forward. Uh, if there's anything that I've ever heard, either through focus groups uh, or through uh, polling that, that is done periodically, is that the uh, everybody is, is being frustrated with the park not moving forward. And as, as you probably know, a lot of people have been, you know, speculating and talking about the reasons. Well, we are here now. We, we all of the reasons that, no, no matter what the reasons were, all the reasons that have prevented this park from moving forward at full speed ahead are behind us. And, uh, and uh, those issues, those reasons, have been put to bed as of the end of 2010. We are ready to move forward. And, and the reason why you're seeing August is because we sat down with the city on August, on January 10 when we filed the maps and put together an extremely aggressive uh, schedule to get us to a place where we can start moving forward. Nobody wants to delay this a single day. And the city's staff has been working around the clock, really around the clock, including weekends and late nights, to get to that place. So um, that's true. I I tried to actually um, get a someone from the the planning staff to uh, speak on the program, and they said we've we've got so much work to do to get ready for Thursday. We we've got to stay focused on that more. Sorry, we can't be on this. So there, we were unfortunately not able to have them. But that's that's the marker of. Uh, what a, a large consideration this is for them to prepare uh, sufficiently for a, a, a thorough review of every consequence with the environmental impact reports, the um, uh, you know all of the aspects of the plan, uh, the development plan. For the I have to tell you, they they have been working literally around the clock. I haven't. I don't think there has been one weekend where my staff and the city staff have not been in communication working through this. As I, as I said, everybody's been waiting for this moment, and, and I'm looking forward to Thursday and then the 23rd and, uh, and then to, uh, to have a uh, groundbreaking. And, and I am confident that if everything goes according to plan, the public is going to start seeing things move extremely fast. 
Well, when uh, now we noticed that there were some rosier pictures in the beginning of the year when you filed that uh, development plan with the city. Um, our, uh, there still is a very soft real estate market at this point. Um, when do you uh, see yourselves breaking ground and, and having a viable kind of a, a, a lively enough housing market uh, to make this work for the first phase? Well, look, uh, there is a soft housing market uh, nationally. There's a lot of there's a soft housing market uh, in a lot of areas. Um, I think on a relative basis, and and we have to be careful about not measuring against a market that is a 2005 market. But on a relative basis, Irvine has proven to have a healthy housing market, and the Irvine company's success is is really evidence of that. Uh, we have had now. Uh, a year and a half of uh, of a housing market that the Irvine company has provided that has given us a lot of data and a lot of comfort here. Um, as I said, if we start development in October, November, uh, we will spend all of 2012 in land development and putting all of the infrastructure in. And we really will not have any home construction until 2013, and therefore, you're not going to have the first move-in until probably middle of 2013 at best. And short of a something that's on a national basis, a, like a double depreciation or something like that, which we can't control, um, I have no reason to believe that the housing market by then is not going to be even healthier than it is today. And the, there's the school uh, envisioned in that westerly portion. Um, and when is that a skit? What, when is that phased into this project? Well, we have a school. Uh, we have reached a school agreement, an agreement with the school district, which, again, I have to applaud the staff over there. Again, it shows you the motivation that exists today by everybody to do something, to create uh, good news, to create an economic engine. Uh, again, the staff from school district and my staff worked through weekends, through, through late nights to reach an agreement. We have that agreement, and... Uh, and it provides for us uh, giving the school district the land, and, and it's actually a quasi-partnership with even the Irvine Company where we both have the benefit of seeing a high school being built. We both have an obligation to to provide that, and we work very closely with them. Um, that agreement is in place. Uh, the location is still fluid, and, and that's something that will be uh, – uh, we will be sitting down and figuring out where the location is. But there's an agreement to provide for a school, and, and we will provide the land. So the school location, this fluid uh, location, would uh, bring in probably both your firm, the Irvine Company, the city council, as well as the uh, Irvine Unified School District? Well, currently the uh, the school agreement that exists is a, an agreement between us and the um, and the school district, there's a separate agreement also uh, that involves the Irvine Company because of obligations that they have to participate in the same high school. Uh, it doesn't bring this, the council into it, uh, but that might happen in the future as a result of um, us revisiting the location with the school district and the Irvine Company and the, uh, and the uh, city as well. Okay. Well, I'm, we're talking this morning on Ask a Leader with Emil Haddad, the CEO of Five Point Communities, developing the Great Park neighborhoods here in Irvine, California, talking about the latest uh, public, uh, the Great Park neighborhood development plan before the Planning Commission 
August 4th. That's in uh, real time. That's not in the podcast. In real time, that's this Thursday. And um, the the high that's the high school that's envisioned on that school property. It's that's the, that's the institution that is um, being considered. I'm sorry. When you say it, the, it's the, the high school is that's what kind of structure is being considered on the school property within the Great Park neighborhood plan. Uh, when you're asking about what type of a plan, it's going well with your development plan. Uh, it is a, a high school that has been uh, envisioned for that parcel that yes, is showing yes, in that plan. Yes. Yes, it will be a high school. And that would be pulling the Woodbury residents and the other adjacent um, Irvine properties to to that particular school. I am not clear exactly as to where it pulls from. I, I don't have that information in front of me. Oh, but, that's kind uh, of ma- micro, I guess. And you're you're still dealing with whether you've got redevelopment agency status to work with, uh, the soft housing market, the uh, uh, the changing uh, aspects of. Um, you know, of the plan, the discussion, that kind of thing. So um, anyway, I understand. So um, is there anything else that you would like to wrap up? I, I'm, the uncertainty here might approximate the uncertainty you had to deal with in Beirut with the redevelopment in the after the early 80s. Uh, which one confounded you more? Uh, no, definitely Beirut does. Uh, but uh, here it has been actually a, a short of, as I said, short of the curveballs that were thrown our way uh, by the housing market and by the economy and some specifics that have to do with our own capitalization. Indeed. Um, it has been a, a smooth process, and I expect it to, to stay that way. Well, Mr. Emil Haddad, thank you for coming on our show today. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing how uh, I hope I can witness firsthand what's happening with the the Planning Commission. And uh, I wish you uh, all the best in bringing the best that you can in community development to the city. Thank you. And we're planning to do that. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, we are um, fortunate we could have a a little look-see at what was going on, what goes on with the great park neighborhoods here in the city of Irvine. Um, the hearing before the Planning Commission, as I said, is scheduled for the August 4th meeting. For those listeners interested in participating in the process, the Planning Commission, that is the five persons appointed by the City Council, will have a public hearing on the proposed development. The meets, meeting starts at 5.30 p.m. in the City Council Chamber at 1 Civic Center Plaza. The meeting will be extensive. If you you uh, can't arrive right on time, it'll 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 last a while. And your your comments are always welcomed by your planning commission. And since this is a development of regional concern, you don't have to be an Irvine resident uh, to have a meaningful contribution in the forum. And at 10 o'clock at that meeting, the planning commission will determine which of the remaining agenda items can be considered and acted upon prior to 11 o'clock. And then they'll, they'll continue all other items which require additional time in the future commission meetings. So all meetings with the commission, the planning commission, are scheduled to terminate at 11 p.m. And as I said, the the planning commission consists of the five residents of the city appointed by the Irvine City Council members. The commission meets regularly on the first and the third Thursday of each month in the council chambers. And um, the uh, you can see the agenda posted at the police department. Also, it's available uh, through their fax library system. You can dial 949-724-6210 and request document number 107. And the meeting agendas, they're approved and the minutes are kept current on the city website at Uh, 
irvine.ca.us. So after a brief break, my next guest will be political science professor Matthew Beckman to talk about what's been on all our minds, I hope. So please don't go away. This is going to be a fresh treatment, the big picture of where the center political gravity is going toward remedying the national deficit. He's been paying attention in the long term. So he's going to weigh in this time about Obama's latest challenge amidst this shift. We'll be right back. Welcome back. That was Chikoria's The Rumble here. We're going to have to set up the tone here for what's going on. Now, we're back on Ask a Leader, and my next guest here is Matthew Beckman, political science professor at UC Irvine, and he is going to uh, talk about uh, his work with presidential politics his studies are how presidents push their policy proposals in Congress and the consequences of partisan polarization. He is the author of Pushing the Agenda, Presidential Leadership in U.S. Lawmaking, uh, published by the Cambridge University Press, so you know that's got to be good. So <laughs> welcome to the show, Matthew Beckman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you're on because this this couldn't be riper. And people think that we've heard... A lot, uh, or perhaps too much about the deficit ceiling. I don't think they've seen anything yet because lots of cans have been kicked down the road further. But let's start, Matthew Beckman, with what has become with of uh, the center of American politics. Where where do we find it now? Yeah, uh, no, polarization is a very real thing. There, it's a little different though than often people envision. Um, so one of the aspects of this is when people think back to this halcyon day of bipartisanship and so on and so forth, where leaders sat around and got along and so on and so forth, a lot of that was tied actually to uh, sort of the pre-civil rights bargain that was going on, where the South would elect conservative Democrats and the North would oftentimes elect sort of um, New England Republicans, these liberal Republicans. And so they got along because the sort of deal was they would not work together, that they would keep civil rights issues off the agenda or not really press them very hard. And uh, so as after the Civil Rights Act of 64 and so on and so forth, um, there was a lot of sorting where all of a sudden the South became not just um, conservative but also Republican, and the North became both more liberal and democratic. And so what we've seen is sort of these cross-pressured moderates who used to fill up Congress have gone away. And now you get more pure party ideology people, uh, which leaves only a handful of moderates in the middle. And at the same time as that's occurred, and part and parcel of that, is we've seen more and more where the partisanship has become more intense. So as the parties have become more homogenous and further apart from each other, they have increasingly become more partisan. And so they fight more and they prefer, you know, the sort of team building over reaching deals and all this other stuff. So it's, and you add into it the sort of 24-hour news cycle and all of it has made for a much more difficult environment in which for leaders to come across the aisle and just sort of reach 
reasonable, quiet consensus. Wait a minute, you're ahead of us now. We were going to talk about that at the very end about the um, how the media and uh, is driving some of this the presidential's agenda uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in your uh, your ovals, the ovals inner circle. Well, that's your book you're working on now. We'll get to that later. But um, okay. so um, I mean, right up until this morning, I'm reading uh, Joe Nocera this morning, who's talking about it's inexplicable to him that Obama chose instead of invoking the 14th Amendment about the validity of the public debt that as a uh, Joe Nocera quoted, I quote him, he chose the course of action that maximized the leverage of the Republican extremist. So what happened there? What, uh, does Obama not know how to play his hand? Or <laughs> what kind of hand What kind of hand did he have to play? There's a, I think as a first principle, the people tend to way overestimate presidents leveraging Congress. That when you actually look at the broader institutional setup, uh, by by design, the presidency was not made to be a great lawmaking office. And they, in fact, the founding fathers specifically thought ways to inhibit presidents from being able to both, you know, execute and legislate. And so the, the presidents don't come in with a strong hand on a lot of negotiations, other than if they happen to be politically strong at the moment. So if you happen to have high poll numbers and a booming economy and so on and so forth, maybe the... the um, a national security crisis that the president is taking over. Those are moments in which presidents tend to get a lot of deference, and so members of Congress will turn to the president and and sort of follow their lead. Or I mean, I guess all leaders do that. I mean, even right down, we just talked about a city council, uh, uh, mm-hmm. a planning commission review of a, a development plan around the Great Park, and uh, the, all the incumbents are always reelected when things are going great. Uh, there's they don't even have to campaign. So you're saying yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't matter what level of government we're talking. Well, certainly, for pre- I know presidents best, and presidents, it depends on peace and prosperity, sort of drives their their standing. And when you look at a situation like this, I mean, the, the president comes in with the deal that was sealed or is just now being passed by the Senate. It really was baked in the cake after the election. And if the economy had really Which election? Around, 2012 oh, or yeah, 2010 20, or 2010? 2010. 2010's election. The midterm elections, like... As the Republicans really took over, and in particular this Tea Party group got a good foothold, um, it there was the basic setup was such that President Obama came into it with a difficult hand. I mean, for two reasons: one is just the partisan composition of Congress and the House in particular was such that you know to get over, to win a majority of the House and 60 votes in the Senate on both of those, you're having to appeal to people that are rather conservative, moderately conservative. Um, and, and rather, go ahead, say it. And then when you factor in even more the Tea Party group, it, you know, they were much more willing to stick to principle over pragmatism, that they were will- they were much more willing to ride out to the end a default threat than was the Obama and, Obama and the Democrats. And so when you get that combination of the president needs sort of a moderate Republican support anyway, and the strident conservatives were willing to, um, they were much more willing to play Russian roulette than he was. It, you know, he's just in a weak bargaining position going into things. And so I don't think there was a magic bargaining strategy or, so like, unless he was really, the 14th Amendment people have talked a lot about, unless President Obama was truly willing to do it, it if it, if it was just a strategy, right? Like, some people have said, what he should have done is threaten it so that then, uh, it would have helped strengthen his bargaining position. 
the problem is it's only strengthens his bargaining position if the other side agrees that the consequences are bad. And so unless he's truly willing to do the 14th Amendment option, there was a good reason to believe that, like, in talking it up, it would embolden people not to compromise at all. Um, that they were like, well, now we have an out. You know, we can just be as pure as possible, and Obama's going to save save the day. Um, and so, if he want, if he truly wanted it to be a compromise and a uh, work through Congress, then if bringing up the Fourteenth Amendment at all would actually weaken his bargaining position, I, I believe. Well, with the way this hand was played at this point, um, and the deferred decisions, and I'm just right. talking about the fiscal. I'm going to talk about other things. There's been a lot deferred. Uh, period. Um, uh-huh. But with these deferred decisions, though, uh, the, the, a weakened hand doesn't get stronger later on. Um, I, I, I wonder at the, the dynamic here where this extremely polarized Congress uh, from the right can wield influence in the next iterations of reconciling this deficit and other w- unwieldy budget problems. Well, what's going to be really interesting to see is who makes up this committee um, that's going to propose the cut, the next round of cuts, the sort of second step of this process, and exactly how they go about doing it. Uh, by sort of pointing the so-called trigger at the Defense Department, um, it's going to make for an interesting... When we go through this again, the next debate's going to be equally interesting in the sense that um, if the this commission comes up with some measure of uh, tax increases as well as spending cuts, which would seem to make, you know, it's, it gets really hard to raise, cut the deficit enough by just cutting spending. Uh, you really start having to cut into some sacred cows. So if they do some combination of tax increases and... Now, and they are the committee, cuts, then, Matthew. It's the committee that's going to recommend the alternative. We always have to know who the they is, especially yeah, especially in, this, on August 2nd of 2011. Bipartisan com- committee that they've sort of built into this current deal. Uh yeah, it's it's just going to be fascinating to see. You could be in a situation where the the sort of Republicans are forced to choose between tax increases and and really uh, just really taking a big chunk out of the Defense Department. And so those that will be equally volatile as we get to it. And it's not obvious to me which which one is the lesser of two evils. Did this the point that we reached this week would it ha- have just amazed you? Uh, just let's say just prior to the um, 2010 election, uh-huh. how, um, when did it stop surprising you that this was actually happening? Uh, I, no, I was, I was really surprised. I mean, I, up until when, it, when they first started this discussion, I thought, you know, this, they're not going to do a major deal. It's just too hard to, to get everyone to agree to such big numbers and such a long horizon. But that um, I thought, you know, ultimately they'll come up with something and raise the debt ceiling pretty quickly. And so, and even at the end, I mean, I still thought, you know, it's it's only one in four that we actually get to. A, but more and more you started seeing people ossify their positions and really laying down public markers where, wow, it's going to be hard to back down off of that. And uh, as Boehner was struggling to get any bill through his caucus and get, get the House to pass a version of it, that was the first time that I was really like, wow, we really could struggle to see a deal that actually holds together here. But once they got that first version through the House, then again, I still was pretty confident that they were going to get something done. I mean, the 
stakes are so high, and the nature of the current environment, the slow economy, and then these wars that are sort of um, stumbling along, it makes it so that it, we're really in a – the next election is 50-50, I, I think. Obama's chances for – and so neither I'm sorry, you just cut the, out a little bit there, Matthew. Oh, Obama's chances are which? Are about 50-50, as I see it. Yes, and then you said, okay, and oh, so his. That means, like, both sides have a huge stake in not blowing this up. I mean, they each are in this game for winning the next election. And so I think nobody wants to take a huge gamble right now that would really throw throw a Hail Mary to see which way it was going to go. And so I think doing the debt, um, blowing up the deficit would or the debt ceiling would have been a Hail Mary that would have really been volatile, and one side would have won and one side would have lost. But it's not clear which side. Well, when you were talking about um, perspectives and that kind of a thing, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact expression you used, but with um, was, was there a distortion in terms of, you, you're talking about the, uh, the significance, the importance of such a large budget, though. Would you, uh, would you characterize the, the right-wing uh, center of the Republican Party as losing a grip on the imperatives of what public finance means for reinvigorating the economy. Um, I, I would I wouldn't characterize it that way. How would but you? What I think is that you know you have a bunch of people who have very clear beliefs about where we where we are as a country fiscally, and they're very committed to the principle. So the, their sense is not, I, I, I think it's, it's not necessarily ignorant or unreasonable or what, what have you in that sense. It's just they very firmly believe that we're in worse shape than people realize and that if we don't get this under control now, we will, the consequences are going to be coming. And so they were very committed to their view that we need to cut spending now, like not not next year, not in the future, but now. And we need to lock it in. And so because they were so fervent in that, they were willing to suffer other consequences. I mean, it was sort of like a trade-off of like, they just estimated the implications of the future consequences of not doing it as equally bad to the current problems associated with not raising the debt ceiling. So when you listen to like a Michelle Bachman or something, uh, you know, she sort of viewed it as like people are overestimating the problems of not raising the debt ceiling right now, but we'll still have money coming in and we'll have to just pick and choose which bills we pay and cut back on everything. And that's not that bad. It's, it's what is going to happen in the future anyway, so we might as well start now taking our bitter medicine. So I just think it's, uh, it's just a very um, strong set of beliefs about what we have to do. And, a, and when you get so committed to a particular principle, the sort of normal give and take of the legislative process fades away. You're like, no, we're, I'm willing to ride off the rails on this particular bill. Well, we are listening this morning on Ask a Leader to Matthew Beckman, UCI political science professor on presidential leadership and presidential politics here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live to all of you all over the place on KUCI.org. Well, you had mentioned earlier that this polarization in American politics is probably at its most extreme since the Civil War. 
Yeah. My goodness. I think that's certainly, um, you know, the we had a unique period of sort of relative harmony there after World War II, where the Democrats dominated Congress, and there was a general sort of increasing of the social safety net, and there was just a general agreement. And then starting, there's a new book out called Winner Take All Politics by um, Pearson and Hacker, some political scientists. And they really pinpoint 1978 as sort of a period where we, this general consensus about the role of government in sort of protecting the middle class started to fade. And there became more divisions. So it goes along with the civil rights era, right? Like at the same time as the civil rights fights uh, lead people to become more, the parties and, and their ideologies to become more homogenous. So the Republicans become more cleanly conservative and the Democrats become more cleanly liberal. Um, there becomes a more entrenched fight about what's the role of government in society. And so more and more this has just percolated and, and it's gotten to the point now where it's it's just much more intense. And again, the increasing transparency is in many ways good. You look back at old Congresses and it's sort of shocking how much stuff they were doing behind the scenes, without recorded votes, without it was hard to know what your lawmaker had actually supported or not supported. Now we have a lot more transparency, but it does in, in many ways increase the sort of political side of everything that's going on. So everyone knows there that there's going to be a blog focusing on what they've done, that there are a million news outlets minute by minute fault tracking what they're about what they've said, what they're supporting. And so these calls are and emails and so on and so forth are constantly pressing them. And so whereas there was a time where they were more willing to sort of, uh, they thought they had a little bit more free reign to avoid the electoral cycle. Now it's like there is very little distinction between the governing and campaigning. And you're they're both always weighing heavily on your head. Well, uh, one thing I want to back up on your characterization of this these trends just percolating. I want to bring to our attention these uh, very strategic aspects of more the the right of center movements than the left of center movements we have the uh, the k street sort of mm-hmm. networking we have the american legislative exchange council the alec um, oh, yeah, entity yeah, yeah. and that's that's what i was trying to remember when we were talking about this in preparation for this program and um we have very stepwise certain concerted efforts to consolidate the the message to create, I think it's it's um, more than priorities being set. I'm I'm thinking it's an, an, a, fa- a fantastic echo chamber that is espousing a certain uh, message that may sort of mask a larger sort of agenda. Of, and I'll get to this redistribution question in a minute. But um, that so that with this sort of strategic work that the right of center grassroots have been activating, uh, it's it's more than a percolation. It's a it's a steady, steady beat of uh, activism. I, uh, yes and no. Both sides have these, you know, I mean, when, when you go up and down K Street, uh, where the lobbyists are, there there's lobbyists of all stripes. And I think the, we tend to overestimate their influence on affecting lawmakers and legislation. Um, 
more often than not, what they're doing is serving an audience that's already there. So if you happen to have a conservative member who wants to do conservative things, what the lobbyists usually do is not... um, they don't convince somebody who otherwise would be liberal to be conservative. They don't convince somebody who's moderately conservative to be more conservative. What they tend to do is find somebody who already agrees with what they believe is good policy, and then they try to help give that person resources and ability to do even more. So um, a lot of what lobbyists do is they'll find somebody who already agrees with them, right? Like the automakers work with the senators from Michigan and the House members from Detroit and say, hey, look, here's an amendment that would be good for the workers in your state, the workers in your district. And so too, so too on the conservative side. So it's, you know, I think that they do play a role. And there is good evidence, actually, that as we've seen, like the proliferation of news outlets, and rather than it being sort of the big three, and Walter Cronkite would tell you, here is sort of a mainstream Democratic take on this. Here's a mainstream Republican take uh, on this. And then you would go forward and it would only be a half hour. Now people can get very slanted news one way or the other on both, on everything and in both directions. And people tend to look for, we call it motivated reasoning. People are motivated to find out, they attend to sources that already confirm their predispositions. So a Republican, a conservative Republican will tend to seek out Fox News and Fox News in playing to their audience will tend to confirm what that audience already wanted to believe anyway. And on the other side, like MSNBC or, or uh, CNN or whatever, that the Democrats will do the same. So a Democratic audience member will seek out a liberal, more liberal outlet and then hear things that they already agree with. And in both cases, you sort of see people pull out toward the extremes rather than come together in the middle. Well, um, I promised, um, there's a couple of things. I promised everybody we'd be doing this, a fresh take at what's going on with this deficit ceiling debacle, um, with uh, t- looking at the shift to the center, sort of the overall trends. I also, um, one thing is, you you have talked about, and so did uh, Joe Nocera in the New York Times editorial this morning, about the uh, public's, that this situation we're faced with now resembles a great deal what Roosevelt looked at you say 36, Joe Nocera says 1937, but uh, we're looking at how public spending might have been a, a prop up of the the economy. What we have already spent 1.2 trillion dollars on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, so we don't have that sort of uh, World War II kind of mobilization to boot uh, start up the um, you know. The, us out of the the Great Recession. So, what what do you see uh, is a uh, a remedy if we're looking at a, a Roosevelt in 1936-37 situation? Yeah, I don't. Um, it's going to be difficult. I mean, the, when Obama first came into office, and we were in sort of the probably I guess it would be nadir of the economic collapse, where there was the you know I mean I guess maybe Bush with TARP and stuff really kicked it in. And there was still an appetite for, like, the government needs to do something to help. The problem, some of the problems is, like, you know, that even with massive, relatively big spending, nothing on par with what the Great Depression was, um, you know, it's, it's a smaller part of the economy. Like, the, even when we do these things, they're just not sufficient to fill the gap of a big economic downturn. They have, or at least the ones that the Obama people thought were plausible weren't big enough. And so we're sort of in this 
weird world in which we look and it's like the economy is still sputtering along. And I think most economists would say that the stimulus helped rather than hurt and all the government interventions and things like even the things that people take for granted, things like um, Medicaid and the unemployment benefits and Social Security really served as stimulative uh, stopgaps and circuit breakers in an economy that was falling apart. And so, but we look at it and it's like the conservative take right now is like, oh, you know, the economy is still sputtering, so all of that stuff was for naught. And so there really isn't, and there's a lot of people who agree with that, or at least that's their impression. And so we're sort of in this situation where if Obama came back and said, look, we're still, unemployment is still incredibly high. We need another bite at the apple to help help all these people who are unemployed or underemployed. Um, I just don't think the partisan makeup in Congress nor the political appetite among that audience is there to do another major effort like um, sort of Roosevelt in 37, after they cut back on the spending, they reinstituted it when they realized they were having a double dip. Um, I just think we couldn't do that today. Well, so besides the fact that we have a massive redistribution of a, a continuation of a redistribution of, of income in this budget decision now, um, that, that's one, one sort of liability I see in terms of the general public uh, uh, right now. And also, what do you make of the energy all focusing on the deficit ceiling debacle with all the other legislation that was deferred? Yeah, I, you know, part of this is the when you get these really divided um, times and really divided government where you have Republicans have very little agenda or interest in things that Obama would be interested in and vice versa, right? Like, they, they, it's not like, when you look back at the Reagan years, right, people misunderstand. Reagan was, he offered many conservative principles and, and in his heart believed a lot of those. But when it came time to doing things, he was much more sort of like, okay, so what do we need to do here and how do we get this through? And so you look at things like the 86 uh, tax reform or the Social Security amendments they did, they're very sort of, you get some, I get some, and we, we just sort of do this together. We'll cut the baby in half. The, there isn't much appetite for doing that today, and the nature of the congressional composition is such that it's just really hard to envision it. So there, I think part of the debt ceiling I, thing is that it, was, it had to be done. Like there was a deadline coming up, and so... Uh, it forced it that both sides had to attend to the same thing. On almost any other issue that doesn't have that character, where there is like a ticking time bomb, who is going to be, when Obama sits down with Boehner, who's going to be the first one to say, like, I'll compromise? Because there's a real sense that if Obama said, hey, I'll compromise, that Boehner would say, oh, well, you haven't compromised enough. And if Boehner said, I'll compromise, Obama wouldn't be as quick to bite at it, or that certainly the they're haggard. Congress. They're haggard in the compromise category. Yeah, so, you know, both neither side, unless there is really um, this ex- external force pushing their hand, makes them want to reveal what they're, what they're willing to do, or, and especially as we get into more of the 2012 electoral cycle. 
Well, I think we're just in for a stalemate. Uh, well, stale. It's not going to taste very good either. Well, no. uh, Matthew Beckman, I'm so glad that you were able to be on the show. Uh, we um, are we want to close today with uh, mentioning that you are um, working currently on the Oval's inner circle, where you're investigating how intensifying external pressures, which you've alluded to in the interview, yeah. impact uh, post-war presidents' internal decisions. And you're going to be looking at activities and how the media pressures have distorted their agendas, uh, looking from Presidents Kennedy to Bush 41. And I thank you for being on the show. And I look forward to having you take up some other developments that are invariably going to be occurring uh, very near in the future. Well, thank you for having me and letting me ramble on. Uh, No, not at all. No, we need to hear uh, we need to hear some uh, sanity and sort of reckoning of where the where the broader trends are taking us. And uh, I thank you. And we'll we'll stay tuned with you. Okay. thanks a lot, Matthew. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, that was really um, what we were hoping for, but there was even more to, uh, to cover, and we will do that. And I also want to have a three-four-way with some of our local economists here at UCI to talk about the potential for uh, the changes in all this public finance on our, you know, our state and a local um, public education institution. So uh, stay tuned with that. Well, before I uh, hand it over to George Rosales, I do want to thank everybody for joining me on Ask a Leader today. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and we'll see you next week with more programming worth listening to. 